This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Tyson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Colorado, Denver. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Carrie Figdor, Robert Talese, and Alexis McLeod. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Cressida J. Hayes, H.M. Torrey Chair in the Political Science Department of the University of Alberta. Her book, Anesthetics of Existence, Essays on Experience at the Edge, is just out from Duke University Press. How should we think about the relationship between subjectivity and experience? In Anesthetics of Existence, Hayes approaches this question through interrogating the apparent limits of experience found in an unconsciousness, including sleep, forms of checking out, including general anesthesia and a glass of wine, and childbirth. Using genealogy and critical phenomenology grounded in feminist theory, Hayes approaches the project of conceptualizing agency through an interrogation of things that affect us, that happen to us, that we fall into and undergo, but that are at the limits of experience and what can be said about it. Cressida Hayes, welcome to New Books. Thanks, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so will you start by telling us a bit about yourself and your background as a philosopher um, and also how you got into this project? Sure. Um, I have a, a very interdisciplinary background. So I did my first degree in Oxford, which is uh, where I grew up as well, actually. And so I did philosophy, politics and economics. Um, and then I moved to North America very early because I got scholarships to go to grad school where I ended up doing a PhD in philosophy at McGill University, which is a uh, an analytic department. So I, I mentioned this educational history partly because one of the things that's a bit quirky about my life as a philosopher is that I started off being trained in the analytic tradition. And I wrote uh, my first book, which was actually my dissertation, was in feminist philosophy, but it was on Wittgenstein. And the style and the approach of that book were very much uh, analytic. And then after doing that work, I sort of became interested in Foucault, partly with my other hat as a political theorist on. And when I started working on my second book, I I knew that I wanted to say something about Foucault's work. And then I sort of realized that he was a philosopher working in traditions that I knew very little about. And so I started trying to retrain myself as a continental philosopher. And that's really hard. (laughs) I don't necessarily yeah. recommend that anyone um, attempt that. But it's taken me a long time. And so I, I decided that I was going to try and really uh, become not just a dilettante who'd read Foucault, which a lot of people in the social sciences are, but I was going to become a, a proper philosopher who really got it. And that is something that sort of led me through writing my second book, which is called Self-Transformations. And the final chapter of the, that book's about... Um, how and why people change their bodies in order to express something about who they are. So it's about subjectivity and the ways that we use embodied change to capture something about subjectivity. And it was kind of a critique of a model that's based on a notion of authenticity. And at the end of that book, I started talking about style and how we, how we might sort of make ourselves over without relying on um, over-determined discourses that are, that have these ideas of, inner authenticity very deeply embedded in them and how we might think more collectively and intersubjectively and with a keener sense of our own freedom about what it means to make yourself. And so at the end of that book, I thought, yeah, I'm really interested in this idea of making oneself. Uh, And then I got really tired, true story. And I had a baby, which was really tiring. Um, And a lot of things went went wrong in my life. And I started to think more about the idea of self-making as not just a project of freedom, but also an exhausting task and something that's forced upon us and perhaps especially upon privileged academics 
as a kind of uh, a, self, a project of self-curation where your work kind of emanates from this very special person who has this very special intellect. Um, and of course, not all academic work is, is like that, but a lot of philosophy, I think, even philosophy that doesn't think it's like this is kind of like that. It's quite individualistic and it's it's connected in a certain way to the person who's writing it. And um, there's a lot of denial, I think, about exactly what ways it's connected to the person who's writing it. And so I started to think through my tiredness about how I, what I wanted to write for my third book. And um, I was also interested in experience and the politics of experience with my hat as a feminist philosopher on and just thinking about how we seem to be, we've lived through so many moments in the last decades where it's clear that the personal is political and the deepest and most profound way, but it's also clear that our experience is, is up for grabs, that it's out there, it's, it's collectively formed, it's historically formed, and it's also given to us. And so those two things of thinking about a politics of experience and thinking about what it means to be exhausted in various ways kind of came together. And I, in a way, the book that we're talking about today, Anesthetics of Existence, is... Uh, um, a little bit of a turning back on some of the work I did at the end of self-transformations because it's trying to think critically about some of my own words and uh, the, the limits of thinking about the curation of subjectivity through the curation of experience as a way of building a self. And so, um, yeah, so it's focused around some of the paradoxes really of experience and how, how they confront us as political subjects. So it moves from these amazingly different registers. So it's thinking in the most intimate way about personal experience. And then it's thinking about late capitalism's post-disciplinary moment and neoliberal work regimes and all sorts of very big words in, in political theory. And it's mm-hmm. trying to make those things uh, connect uh, in ways that will be meaningful to people who come from different interdisciplinary backgrounds, so from analytic philosophy, from continental philosophy, from political theory, from feminist theory, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, and this makes, this way that you came to this project um, makes a lot of sense that when you misheard the phrase anesthetics of experience, you misheard that phrase as anesthetics of experience. (laughs) Of existence, yeah. Everybody uh, makes, that, makes that mistake because the, both those words are in the title. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yes. And the, because the category experience is so, what, what constitutes the category of experience is so central to the book. That's right. Um, yeah. Interesting. Okay. And so this sort of hearing anesthetics as anesthetics, um, it seems sort of phenomenologically in the moment that that happened at a conference, it seemed really um that mishearing seemed really fecund for you. It sort of named something. And so then in the book, you also explore it phenomenologically. And then you develop also a genealogical account. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, yeah, so the I went to a conference on Foucault and I was really tired. And as usually one is, especially, I mean, I live in Edmonton in Northwest Canada. So going to most any conference that I would want to go to requires a whole day of plane travel. Um, and so I'm always tired, right? And lots of people are tired as well for lots of different reasons. So um, I showed up at this conference, it was in New York City on, um, on Foucault and sitting in these rooms with rows of really uncomfortable chairs under these really bright lights. Um, there's a kind of sensory exhaustion or uh, fatigue as well in that experience that I'm sure many academics recognize. And the talk I heard was was about Foucault's understanding of an space, aesthetics of existence. But because the speaker was talking fast, I thought she was saying anesthetics of existence. And I couldn't, I, I spent about 20 minutes listening to that talk, not understanding what she was trying to say, but puzzling about that phrase. And that ended up becoming my book title. Um, I'm really bad at titles, so I felt a bit proud of myself that I'd come up with something that was actually creative. But it does require some explanation because the idea of an 
space, aesthetics of existence in Foucault and in some other avant-garde philosophers is part of what I was describing as appearing at the end of self-transformations, the idea that you uh, make yourself as a work of art, that what it is to lead a good life perhaps is to uh, engage in this project of self-stylization. And while I, while I think that that's interesting as an alternative to some other uh, things that are offered to us by North American cultures, I think that it's also sort of has has this has a lot of privilege embedded in it, basically, that the people who get to do this are certain kinds of people. And that's not to say that it isn't depleting for those people too. That's another thing that the book is trying to think about is why actually privilege doesn't sometimes feel so great and the ways that we that we are given to try and make it feel a little bit better so that we will tolerate larger systems of power that might not be in anyone's interest. Um, uh, so, yeah, so I got a title and then it was became a title in search of a project at a certain point because my progress on the book was so slow. But I realized that I'd when I'd taught myself Foucault and the associated thinkers, I, I'd kind of learned what genealogy was. But if you are at least a strict reader of genealogy, it makes it look as though there isn't much of a role for experience. So there are certainly moments in Foucault's work, maybe in Discipline and Punish, most obviously, where it seems as though our experience is just kind of genealogically spat out, you know, that what happens to us is uh, is a product of a discourse that we can trace. But as it's experienced first personally, it doesn't really have a lot of meaning. And it's really odd that those moments in Foucault also coexist with him saying things like, all my work has always been based on experience. Mm-hmm. And writing um, his little books like Pierre Riviere and... Euclidine uh, Barbin, those little sort of uh, edits of memoirs that he did. He's obviously really interested in subaltern knowledges and what uh, quirky individuals had to say about their own subjectivity. And that's a really well-established paradox that a lot of particularly feminist Foucault scholars have talked about. So in the introductory chapter, I kind of set out that debate and, and talk through it a bit. Um, but I realized that if I wanted to talk about first personal experience, I, I could either just become a novelist and start doing it in a thickly descriptive fictional voice, which I did kind of toy with, and then I realized that that would be another thing I'd have to learn to do. <laughs> um, or I could find a, a philosophical vernacular for talking more in a more sophisticated way about first personal experience. And the obvious uh, language that does that for us is phenomenology. So then I thought, oh, I've got to teach myself phenomenology. So um, that was another sort of project. And so the book is really trying to say, what what does it mean to use the languages of phenomenology and genealogy together to try to talk about how experience sits on this hinge between being that which can only be presented first personally, can only be described um, through my consciousness and is also so clearly a, a product of its time and place. And, and how do we think about the politics of experience in the context of that, that hinge, right? So that's kind of the project of the book is to situate experience on, in that place and try to do those, do those two things together. And a lot of people will think that they are incompatible methods. And so a little bit of the beginning chapters of the book is about why, how to do it and why I don't think that's the case. But most of the book is uh, showing rather than telling. Most of it is just saying, I, I'll, I'll give you a sop at the beginning and I'll explain in philosophical sort of meta language what I'm trying to do. But most of it is doing it and seeing if you are convinced or if it's productive for the reader. Yeah, interesting because in part of what you do then is it's not, you're not just interested in experience, but then the edges of experience, or this is how you, yeah, these are the, the case studies or the, the way you look at this. And so you do give, as you said, like a SOP, you give this overview um, that I found extremely helpful of, um, of experience and feminist theorizing. Yeah. This, this always feels like such a huge contribution when authors can take, can take the step back briefly and give this overview and then get back into some 
some particular issue um, or start dealing with something in, in a meaty way. Um, so how does that discussion then of the category of experience for feminist theorizing, and especially as it's tied to the discussions about Foucault, how does that lead you to consider what happens at the edges of mm. experience? Yeah, so the subtitle of the book is Essays on Experience at the Edge. And for those people who are able to see an image of the book, Amy Harrison, who is the designer at Duke University Press, has done an extraordinary job of finding a piece of artwork that really captures what the book is about. So this image of an extraordinary giant dark wave, a piece of the ocean really, that's in a room, in a light room, tells you a lot about how I'm thinking about experience. And so the way that's connected to experience at the edge is that a lot of the examples that came up because of my politics really were examples where somebody undergoes something, but it's somehow not their own. So it's possible to have something that we might normally consider to be an experience. But because of the social and political constitution of the category of experience, it doesn't somehow fit in. So experience is, you know, the, I'm sure most people will have had thoughts about the way that experience is appropriated. So that's one of the, um, the axes of the book. But it's trying to think in a, in a more deeply phenomenological way about how experiences in the sense, the very thinnest sense of just things that happen to a subject, um, aren't allowed to be part of that subject's experience in the richer sense of the collection of undergoings that you assemble in order to form your subjectivity. So there's a gap between different understandings of what experience is, between um, sort of a very passive understanding of undergoing and a more active understanding of, of curation and putting together of a self. And so I'm interested in things that seem to fall in the space between those two. And so the book has um, a chapter about sexual violence against people who are unconscious or semi-conscious or coming around. So that's uh, one of the case studies. And then it has two chapters that are about time and about the way that our experience of time is uh, politically very overdetermined. So trying to think about the way that worlds are organized around certain temporalities and what it means to however passively or tacitly resist those understandings of time with um, an experience or almost a non-experience that I call anesthetic time. And then the third case study is childbirth. So there's a lot of feminist writing about how childbirth is, a, is something that female-bodied people undergo, and yet the experience of childbirth is taken away from us. And most of that literature organizes itself around concepts like obstetric violence or um, misogyny in medicine or right that, that kind of... Uh, of those ideas in feminist literature, which is really well established. And so I wanted to try and write something about, about that, about that problem, but to do so in a way that was connected to um, my own experience. So in that last chapter, there's also interwoven between this kind of philosophizing about the way that uh, the experience of childbirth is subject to all of these slippages, there's also a narration of my own experience of giving birth. So those are the three examples of experience at the edge. They're really eclectic. I had to read funny literatures, like I had to read all sorts of stuff about addiction to do the middle stuff. And then I had to read all sorts of things about medical practice to do the final chapter and the literature on sexual violence and legal reform, which is a big part of the first chapter. So I have this encyclopedic knowledge that, that nobody else has. It's just this really odd pastiche of things that I had to read in order to be able to put together these three case studies. Um, but they're all intended to make a bigger philosophical point. And so why those three? Was it the way that they helped you make the philosophical point? Or was it was there a different sort of structure of of encountering these examples as the right examples? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, 
in the period since the book's basic shape crystallized, which, of course, because of writing being so slow and publishing being so slow is already now several years, um, I came to think of other examples. Mm. And I realized that I could spread the book out in various ways. And I might yet do that. I might sort of write more about different things. But at the time, those were the three, for really quite random reasons, actually. I mean, the childbirth one is because I gave birth. Yeah. And I wrote an essay about that that was entirely experiential for um, a, a nonfiction writing competition. Um, didn't win. And then I took that, <laughs> I took that essay and um, thought, I should do something with this because it's sitting there now on my desktop. And then when I when I got really into the the book project, I realized that I had the germ of a chapter in that essay, which I wasn't expecting. Um, and with the, the stuff about uh, sexual assault against unconscious victims, that came out of some collaborative work I was doing um, with Meredith Jones, who's an Australian cultural studies scholar now working in London. And she uh, had been talking about sleep and about the role of sleep in, in the fairy tale and in transformations, work that was obviously connected to my interests in self-transformations in my second book. And I got really interested in that. And she's the person who, who said, you know, I'd heard of all of these big cases at the time, Steubenville, the Steubenville sexual assault case was the big one. And we'd, we'd, we'd heard of these, we'd read some of the news coverage and we started talking about them. And she, she sort of said, well, what's the um, how do we think about this? How do we think about sexual violence against people who are unconscious to it, who are not in, in a really direct sense having an experience of it? Of course, they do have an experience of it, but it's not the same as the experience of someone who's conscious throughout um, an act of violence. And so the, for a long time, those two essays or those two ideas, sets of notes really, sat in completely different places on my desktop. And then I thought, well, maybe these are actually, in a way, about the same thing. Um, and the, the stuff on temporality that's in the middle was a little bit behind those two other things because I started to realize that in order to answer any of the philosophical questions I had about experience, I needed to think about embodiment, which I had also, which I'd already thought about a lot, space, which to some extent, yes, I'd already thought about, but also time. And I realized that I had not thought enough about time and temporality. And so that those chapters started off most theoretical because I simply went and read literatures about temporality in order to try and find a frame for what I was trying to think through. And I'm sure all the phenomenologists listening to this, this is completely obvious, right, that you need to think about space and time. But um, for me, I realized it was a gap. And so mm. my the stuff in the middle about temporality and anesthetic time came out of a more theoretical interest rather than a, a personal or political one. So they all came from different places. It's a bit random is the short answer. <laughs> and yet it hangs together. It works yeah. together. Um, well, so part of what the chapter on sexual violence, part of what you motivate there is an appreciation for unconsciousness as con constitutive of experience. Um, mm -hmm. And as a huge fan of sleep myself, I really appreciated this chapter. It was like, I felt sort of vindicated in my own personal love of sleep a little bit. Um, uh, but part of what you are trying to um, push back on there is the dismissal, actually, of the harm of um, sexual assault to folks who are unconscious. Um, so would you, I would love to hear more about... Um, just how you think of unconsciousness as constitutive of experience mm. and how that leads you to being able to articulate the harm of, of the violation of unconsciousness. Yeah, this, this was really, really difficult to write, this part of this chapter, although I did write it very quickly. Um, but there was, a long, there was a long lead up to it where I was, my philosophical brain was tying itself in knots. There had been so many, there are, I mean, there are so many cases, as I start out the chapter by saying, that, that have been um, made much of in the popular media, and they're by no means representative of cases of sexual violence against people who are, who are unconscious. 
And so I started just reading. It's mostly a legal record of such cases. And of course, it's a legal record because for many people, they, um, they don't know enough about, the, about this form of sexual assault in order to be able to make any kind of complaint. And so it, it sort of, or to tell their own story, I guess. And so it becomes the legal record that is the place where you get cases. And they're, on the, they're in the legal record because there are witnesses. So, and that can be direct witnesses, like it happened at a party and people stood around and watched, or it can be the witness of the video. So there are lots of, um, so far they've all been men who sexually assault people, almost always women, but not always women, um, and make videos of it as a kind of amateur porn, right? So drug-assisted sexual assault with an intent to make pornography is a genre. So that's another kind of evidence. So um, that sort of evidence puts cases into the legal record. And then when you start to read that, you realize how just how many there are, how many there are, and how the people who've been assaulted in those examples are vulnerable. Of course, that's true for the big mediatized cases like Steubenville um, or Red Hair Parsons or Audrey Pot or those cases from the the mid-teens that gained a lot of of media traction. But um, it's just so obvious that uh, homeless women, indigenous women, um, young women or girls, uh, women, yeah, there's so many axes of vulnerability here and that to sexually assault someone when they're unconscious, whether they're asleep or they're drugged, which could be because they've taken drugs or because you've drugged them or they're drunk or uh, in medical contexts too, like being anesthetized for surgery or whatever, um, that there are just many, 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 many cases. So I started uh, looking at those and then thinking about what people said about them. And people say a lot of unbelievably horrible and ill-advised things about those cases um, the, and the things that people know are ill-advised mostly hinge on victim blaming so you shouldn't have dot 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 so part of the purpose of the chapter was to say if your advice is you shouldn't have been unconscious that's impossible for a human being right so there is no human being who does not spend part of their life in unconsciousness And there are multiple paths to that unconsciousness that we come to in various ways. But the idea that you can avoid this form of sexual assault and that you have some kind of moral responsibility to do so is a fantasy. And I wanted to expose it as a fantasy because for obvious feminist reasons, it's a fantasy that does a lot of damage. So that was a, a part of the politics of the chapter. But the sort of philosophical work was to think, well, okay, what is so valuable about sleep, let's say, is the working example, that means that to be violated while you're asleep is a particular kind of harm. And so I ended up thinking back to the the parts of Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks, where he talks about anonymity. And this is part of the phenomenological tradition, Um, like there's some Merleau-Ponty in that chapter as well, because he also talks about it. And I think in if we're using the language of political theory, we're so used to thinking that being an individual is so great and that we need to kind of make ourselves as individuals. This is back to the self-styling aesthetics of existence in a weird way, that we need to make ourselves up as uh, distinctive individuals and pursue our own rational ends towards our own good life. And, And that discourse in a certain kind of political theory is very prominent and surprisingly unchallenged, I find, but one of the things that Fanon points, points out, and obviously this is just one of many contexts to point it out, is that anonymity has a value, right? If you are the only black man walking down the street in Paris or sitting on the train, then you are the person who gets picked out. And you're picked out because of your racial difference. And there's, there's something um, potentially deadly about that, as, as we know, but also just in the course of everyday life, there's a kind of psychic exhaustion that he describes really well that comes from that sort of visibility and being constantly identified as the other. And all the weight of history, as he famously says, that comes pressing down on you as that identification is made. So it's not a harmless 
mention of something quirky about you. It's pressing down of the weight of history on your shoulders. And so sort of thinking about the ways that uh, many, all women, I think, and many genderqueer people as well are constantly sort of visually assessed and objectified, um, whether or not they measure up to whoever's doing the assessing and street harassment and all of these kinds of experiences that are so completely familiar to people from lots of different marginalized groups and what it would mean to have the possibility of having some respite from this kind of visualized public. And I think that the kind of anonymity that Fanon is imagining is kind of anonymity that comes from sleep. And so one of the people who really helped me think through this is Lisa Gunter, um, whose book on solitary confinement has some key passages in that really influenced me. And she explained to me (laughs) what night is in phenomenology. Um, And so there's this idea, right, that you can uh, that you can cease to occupy your normal temporal spatial bounds and fall into a kind of formless existence through the experience of night, which can be through sleeping in in a way, but it can also be through things like um, it can be in a negative sense through solitary confinement, so where you lose the sense of where your body begins and ends, or you start to hurl yourself against the wall. That's one of the examples that she gives because you can't tell where the wall is and you and you are. But it can also be positive. And the example I use in the book is of um, float tanks. A reviewer actually suggested this to me. Um, so that you can go into a float tank and lie in this magnesium-saturated water for a fixed period of time, right? It's not 20 years of solitary confinement. It's a 50-minute hour. And that's really key. And... You can have a completely different experience of yourself as kind of dissolving. And that's another way of experiencing night. And I think that there's something very valuable about that. And if you are unable to descend into night or a more political concept, anonymity, because you fear from your past that that will be interrupted by an act of violence against you, then you develop a kind of vigilance that I think is damaging. And so there's a, there's a necessariness to sinking into night, but also a value to it that you're able to detach from the world, which can be both a political respite and a sort of profoundly existential one, and become a formless, timeless kind of being for a while. And so I think that those things are uh, valuable and they're taken away if you think that... Um, your rest, your your anonymity, your night might be, again, violated by somebody who's going to come and get you. And that's the experience of a lot of people, only one part of the experience of a lot of people who've been sexually assaulted while unconscious is they become hypervigilant and they think, how can I ever even go to sleep, right? Because I just never know if this is going to happen again. So I was trying to uh, think in in a sort of richer philosophical voice about that particular kind of damage because there's already lots of really good feminist work about um, the more obvious kinds of damage that come from sexual assault against unconscious people like you know the the violence or the risk of pregnancy or sexually transmitted infection or the you know that all of the things that happen to people that I do also mention and in some cases describe in the chapter Um, including the circulation of images of your assault. So the final step in the chapter is trying to incorporate that, not just as a sort of violation of privacy, which is how it's often represented, or as just evidence, like in the legal literature, it's represented in both of those terms, but also as a way of taking a two-dimensional image of you and circulating it as the truth. So what's really been hard to grasp, I think, for critics of, the mediatized cases is why it's so profoundly distressing to, in those cases, very young women, girls, really, to have these images circulated among their friends. And I was trying to give some philosophical richness to why that it would lead somebody to kill themselves. And it's because it's a way of making you again through this two-dimensional circulation of the image when you, in your deepest um, complexity of someone who is 
is a, a living subject, but is also someone with an experience of anonymity and of night is erased and you're reconstituted in that in that digital world. Um, and you have no voice in that digital world. It's just a kind of avatar of you that your friends are using as an object. So I tried to, to make that richer. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, yeah, it hooks, I think this analysis that you give in this chapter hooks really importantly into something that people are increasingly talking about, about um, the wearing on the body of of uh, white supremacy and of racism, the way, um, and there's this interesting medical literature that's developing about um, people who are targeted, for instance, with like anti-black racism, that they are um, the sort of like slowing down of the body that's necessary for rest at night mm-hmm. um, can't happen because that vigilance is needed in a white supremacist context. Right. Um, and also, that's what Fanon really was trying to say. Yeah. In a, in a yep. much sort of more measured voice than people are saying it now, which is which is nuts, right? Because he's saying that in he's writing that in the post-war period, mid-century. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's as pressing in this moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, this. So I want to then transition a little bit um, to then this question of temporality that you raise, and. Um, what you call post-disciplinary time, um, and that there's been this um, development since Foucault that you you talk about Foucault having really well-diagnosed disciplinary time sort of at the moment at which it's passing and this new manifestation of post-disciplinary time is developing, um, and you really motivate its importance for feminist accounts of agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and so would you talk a bit about post-disciplinary time about the role of neoliberalism and the production of post-disciplinary time um, and why this is important for these feminist questions of agency? Yeah, sure. So, so there are two chapters about, about time and one is really about time, um, time as a kind of larger structure, right? So how, some, some big structures of history influence what we, what we consider to be time. And the work of that chapter takes us back to some older texts. So um, because I've done a lot of work in my previous book with Discipline and Punish, I, I know that text really well. And I went back to it and thought about all the stuff that in the middle that's about time. And, of course, Foucault has this sort of very neat analysis of how the disciplines involve a certain construction of time. So... Uh, time is linear and it's protensive and it's very carefully divided. So if you think about that school timetable, that's one of his examples. Um, it's it's by the minute, right? So at this minute, the pupils will do this. A lot of the examples he gives are very embodied. So, you know, the pupils will walk from this place to this or the soldiers will perform this maneuver. So time gets, gets cut up into uh, chunks and a certain kind of task has to be accomplished within each chunk. And they, uh, there's a hugely productivist impetus to this. So the point of this is to get things done and uh, to enable human bodies to uh, work in efficient ways. And so he, so he sort of has that description in the middle. And like many moments in Foucault, it's on the one hand you think, you know, oh, this is a uh, an extraordinary mechanism of oppression. Uh, and on the other hand, you think, oh, that's a good way to get a dissertation done. <laughs> you know, so it's like this sort of paradox. Um, in fact, I've often said to PhD students who are working with Foucault, you know, it's like, listen and learn. Like This man wrote a lot of books for a reason. And they look at me really horrified. <laughs> but it's like, he's not just criticizing. Um, yeah. and it's so, not all bad, it's all dangerous. Yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so... 
So I started to think about that and it really reminded me of that old essay by E.P. Thompson about work and time discipline. And so I went back to that essay and I realized that there are a lot of similarities between this um, this sort of late mid-century political thinking about time on the part of these lefties, you know, that, that they really have picked up on some very similar things. But But part of the problem, I think, with that literature is that the kind of time that we're experiencing in the 21st century is post-disciplinary in, in a number of ways. We, we multitask, many of us, in personal and work environments in really different ways. So time is much less, is still very intensely productivist like, and still thought of in extractivist terms, right? So how much efficiency, how much productivity can you get out of people where, of course, Time is one of the variables in, in any equation working that out. Um, so how can you get the most out of workers? And if you think about things like precarious employment that has maximally flexible schedules or what, what's called in more commonly in the UK zero hours contracts, um, which is where you have to be constantly available for work, but you have no fixed schedule for work. So your employer can call you to work at any time and you have to be available. Um, so we think about those ways of using people's time, we can see that the, the productivist impulse has only increased from the time that Foucault and Thompson were writing. But, but the multitasking part of it is really different. So people are pulled in all different directions as they attempt to achieve these productivist goals in lots of different contexts. Um, and so it seems to me that the, the forms of time that they were describing needed to be updated so the work of a lot of that chapter is just trying to think through what post-disciplinary time is, is like and how it's gendered. So there's a literature, well-established literature now on the second shift and how um, women go to work and then come home and do childcare and uh, housework. And that also needs to be modulated by the fact that we now have global care chains of people who are uh, coming, immigrating to first world countries to do that work for the more privileged of those women. Um, or many women are, women are now more likely to be working multiple jobs. That's kind of the multitasking or precarious labor part of things. And so juggling the family and work looks different. So really the chapter kind of runs through that to think about what post-disciplinary time looks like and how it's different from disciplinary time. Um, and so it's a work of political economy, really, that chapter. There's, I had to read a lot of stuff about um, economic shifts and labor markets and so on. And then the, the, the chapter that immediately follows it is, is asking, well, what, what does that feel like? So this is the juggling, the genealogy and the phenomenology. Um, it's what, what is it like to be a various kinds of subjects within that economy of time? And... So one of the, the places I start is by thinking about mums who need wine, <laughs> which is this trope that I'm sure will be really familiar to lots of listeners of um, what it's like to be a mother, maybe a, probably a working mother, but not necessarily, um, a mother in the role of alcohol, particularly of cheap, sweet wine marketed to mothers in managing your economy of time. And so it's, there's a really incredible kind of marketing juggernaut of mummy wine that is organized around the suggestion that you need time out from your life. You need to check out of your life by getting, frankly, a little bit drunk um, or maybe a lot drunk, at, usually at the end of the day. And that mummy wine, or there's lots of different brand names that I, um, that I quote in the book, like there's a wine, there was for a while a wine called Mummy Juice. Um, which <laughs> is a classic of the genre, you know. And so I have some, there's some, a few of the ads and stuff are reproduced in the book. And so I talk about how Mums Who Need Wine is a way of cultivating a kind of diffuse, unpunctuated, end of the day, checking out kind of time that I call anesthetic time. And it's intended as a kind of sop, a little antidote to the post-disciplinary experience of working motherhood. And it's also aimed at privileged mothers. So it's very white-coded. You will never see any woman of color featured in any of this advertising. 
And it's, it makes alcohol. It also uses wine, which is kind of bourgeois drink, right? And it makes uh, drinking seem harmless. It's what you deserve. And I was interested in that construction of whiteness as well as that construction of um, maternal femininity because it strikes me that um, drinking or getting drunk while you're looking after your kids is mu much more risky for poor women or, or women of color um, who are much more likely to be surveilled by various kinds of social services, uh, among other things. And so I, I took a little look at that. And then I started thinking about anesthetic time in broader contexts. And I, I'd kind of started doing that. I didn't know how far I was going to get. And I'm really grateful to one of my reviewers for Duke University Press who urged me to think more, to, to extend the chapter in that direction. So I end up looking at what it means to be a post-disciplinary post-subject. That was the reviewer's language, actually, mm. um, under anesthetic time and the way that there are, there are also whole populations of people who are much less privileged than mums who need wine, um, who, whose time is completely dead, that they are seen as just people who are in a holding pattern, people who must be managed and incarcerated or corralled in all sorts of ways until, until they die and that their death is speeded up, of course, by those forms of uh, incarceration or institutionalization and so anesthetic time ends up towards the end of that chapter having a very bleak face of being the experience of being completely shut away like your anesthetic time becomes uh, all you have the time of the unpunctuated checking out of the drugged and there are lots of populations of people on whom psychotropic drugs are quasi-voluntarily or involuntarily used um, mm that if they become completely anesthetized to the world and that we as a society have accepted that there are large populations of people for whom this will be their existence. So the, the chapter again kind of moves through different registers of um, very personal, uh, first personal experience to a kind of very large population thinking about biopolitics. Yeah, so that's the stuff on time. It was, it was hard to write because there's so yeah. much so much going on yeah uh, and it just i have to say reminds me of conversations i've had with people who are in prison and especially yeah. women who are in prison yeah. who have a sort of first they sort of responsibilize themselves about the use of psychotropics in prison um and there's a sort of discourse of critique about the use of psychotropics and asking for them um and then people who people who sort of say, well, I went through a period of asking for them, and but I'm through that. It just, I think this, this both genealogical and phenomenological really meets at, at that site. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that was one of the, one of the populations that I was thinking of. And there's lots of really good work by other people, some of which is cited in the book about, about that problem, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then the last chapter goes to an experience uh, that you chose not to use anesthesia. Um, <laughs> and the, the, the last chapter is titled um, Childbirth and Aesthetic, and it's hard just on audio to capture the, um, the way that you shaped that title, but it's child, mm -hmm. comma, new line, birth, new line, and aesthetic. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And the, which I think is important to the way that you actually proceed through the analysis. You move through these levels mm. of analysis, and I can only imagine this took some time to craft. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, would you just talk about how this last chapter is an aesthetic or the performance mm. of an aesthetic? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for noticing the title. <laughs> it's like a little detail where you're like, oh, I, I did that. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we often write the word childbirth as one as one word, <clears throat> meaning the experience of giving birth. Um, and the chapter is about the events of both birth and the child. So the separation of those words is intended to capture both of those things. So here's the, the experience of childbirth, but there is also the event of the child, the event of birth. And then there's a parallel split with the subtitle, the second half of the title, and aesthetic, 
which is riffing on the same thing as the title of the book, but it's it's just sort of saying there's still this element of aesthetic experience in in the things that I'm trying to describe. It's not that I've completely sort of given up on the world, um, but there's also this question of uh, whether child, when and in what way childbirth is an anesthetic experience. And it might be anesthetic literally because it's the most, um, it's one of the most commonly anesthetized experiences that uh, people who are otherwise well will have. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also anesthetic in the sense that it's a classic example of an experience that's taken away from its subject. So that literature about that I mentioned at the beginning about the objectification of birthing women or the, the way that medical technology has, has replaced uh, the subjective experience of giving birth is a background to this chapter. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you say it, I think perhaps my favorite line in the book, I don't know, <laughs> really great lines, but you say um, that trying to tell the experience of giving birth um, goes straight from ontological challenge to epistemic irrelevance. Yeah. Um, and that's really, I thought, I thought you really put your finger on something incredibly important about um, representations of childbirth, but also about what philosophy thinks is worth our time. Yeah. Yeah. So, so part of the project of the chapter is to say uh, childbirth can be a limit experience and a limit experience in, in Foucault and other philosophers is often represented in this very heroic language like it's a highly masculinist experience, and it's there's not. I mean, there's nothing necessary about a trip to Death Valley or fist fucking as as masculinist experiences, but somehow it's always kind of um, portrayed using uh, heroic vernacular. And one of the things that I wanted to sort of point out in my feminist voice was: what if actually the experience of giving birth is, is or can be? because it's an event, really, rather than an experience. So it's not something that you can predict in advance. You can't sort of sit down and say, right, when the baby's born, I'll be having a limit experience. It doesn't work that way. Um, But um, that it often does kind of work out that way. And that that possibility, and it's really the possibility that's important, I think, that possibility is systematically taken away by institutions that are powerful over this part of our lives. And so there's, there's lots of feminist literature that makes this point, but it tends to sort of shift the, the responsibility for sovereignty to birthing women. You know, like you have to go in there and stand up for your rights and you have to have a birthing plan. And I realized I never really answered your question about agency, but this is a place where um, mm. that thread in the book kind of comes in that, you know, if you just do everything right, you'll be the better agent than the doctor and you'll win. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, Anyone who's listening to this who's ever given birth is like shaking their head sadly. Because it's not, you know, you can have the sort of most intelligent um, political analysis of childbirth in the world and it can still just not work out that way. And so it's actually an experience of being willing to give up a certain kind of control. But that should happen in the context of another kind of faith, right? So there should be, you should be able to have have reasonable faith if that's a thing such a thing as reasonable faith that um you that you will not be objectified or that things that um you don't want to happen won't happen unless you know there's a reason that you would consider a good reason like there's all sorts of kind of um epistemic erasures that go on in the way that childbirth is represented and the way that it's institutionalized and so in in suggesting the possibility of childbirth as a limited experience I don't want to sort of tell people what they should be doing. So I've been accused of this actually by, by a few people of sort of just doing the opposite and saying that, that women and, and flaky midwives need to take charge. And, mm. I, and that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just sort of pointing out that there's a profound philosophical possibility here. And if we, if we acknowledge that, we would have to think really differently about female bodies, about birthing, about institutions of medicine and we would have to think philosophically in a very different way and we would certainly not follow the philosophical tradition of thinking about birth or at least the extra feminist philosophical tradition of thinking about birth that we've inherited 
Yes, in fact, there's a moment in the chapter where you you note that the person most likely to advocate for a pharmaceutical free birth as a midwife. And there's actually kind of, you have this sort of feminist critical mm. edge on that, I thought. Mm. Uh, it's very cultural. Um, so I, I think that that's true in North America where midwifery is still kind of, um, occupies a sort of space somewhat outside institutionalized hospital birth. Mm. Um, and also it's just true that if you give birth at home, which is one way of avoiding hospitals. <laughs> you know, huh? Pretty good bet that <laughs> um, you won't be able to have certain kinds of drugs because midwives are so are limited in their practice. And so it's, you know, there's this kind of practical question of what it means to elect to give birth without anesthesia, which is a very, very scary thing to do, especially if it's your first birth. It's scary in a different way if it's your subsequent birth. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, and then on the other hand, especially in the UK, I think what you're mentioning is more prominent. Um, there's a kind of attitude of, well, you know, you don't need that and you can just get through it. And the people who are, are arguing that you should be able to get through pain in childbirth are more likely to be midwives than obstetricians. But again, it's sort of to do with scope of practice. Like if your practice is, is supporting women through an experience, then you're likely to think that that's a good thing. If your practice is giving women drugs, you're likely to think that that's a good thing. Um, and so it's very difficult if you're a woman giving birth to know what your um, what your options are in, in that moment, right? Like it's actually incredibly epistemically challenging to negotiate when you're in extremis, when you're in a, in a situation where you're hardly in any state to do anything, really. It's so loaded, yeah. 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 Um, well, so at a few points in the book, you talk about this book as sort of a prequel to a feminist philosophy of sleep. Um, did I get right. that right? Is that... That's right, yeah. Okay, so I'm really hoping this is your next project, but is this is this your project now? Yeah, yeah. So one of the reasons that this book took so long, apart from negative reasons, is that I've actually been working on my feminist philosophy of sleep in tandem with this book. Uh, and so the book is called Sleep is the New Sex. And so I'm on uh, Facebook and Twitter with that handle. And it's... Um, yeah, so it's intended to be a slightly more popular book, just looking at the way that ex the experience of sleep and representations of sleep um, are inflected by gender and sexuality. And the way that, I mean, you probably noticed that discourses about sleep have really exploded. It's become a, a, a topic that everybody's talking about. Um, and just uh, I've been picking through all of those um popular moments and and the philosophical literature and the health health sciences literature which is um a different kind of challenge and just trying to think about what i can say about a feminist philosophy of sleep so at the moment actually i'm just finishing a chapter that's about ch advice to parents about children's sleep oh so dear okay what, yeah right so what do um experts say to parents really to mothers about uh, baby sleep in particular. And I'm trying to make an argument about how it, uh, it's a sort of object relations argument about how this is really about relationships of uh, domination and uh, autonomy and dependence that have everything to do with political economy. So it's trying to do a kind of Jessica Benjamin meets Richard Ferber. So, <laughs> um, two people you never thought you would hear mentioned in the same oh. um, And yet, as you say it around children's sleep, it's, of course, it, that discussion must happen. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, it's enormous, the literature. Like, I can't even read them all, the number of self-help yeah. books for people who can't get their baby to sleep. And so it's, uh, that's one chapter. And then I have another chapter that's about work, um, that's about the history of uh vilifying sleep as um, an obstruction to work and in particular to productivity 
And that picks up on quite a lot of what's in the chapter on time. So the political economy stuff and thinking about how sleep is represented as standing in the way of getting more things done. Mm. So that's another chapter. Um, and then there are, there's various other bits and pieces floating around. There's a, a bit where I sort of have a go at Arianna Huffington and Elon Musk for having a having a public fight about sleep that I think, <laughs> I think tells us nothing. <laughs> Sorry. So I'm trying to write in a, in a more popular vein and a, a, in a way that still reflects my training as a philosopher, but that will enable more people who don't have philosophical training to, to read the book and get more out of it. Excellent. I cannot wait to read it. Well, yeah. thank you so much for our conversation today. Oh, thanks, Sarah. It's been a great pleasure. It's, um, it's a rare pleasure to have somebody carefully read your book and want to talk to you about it for a whole hour. So. It's a pleasure to read and to to hear your thoughts. Great.